Hello, good morning, and welcome to the Sitcom Club. I am Gary. I am joined by that lover of sitcoms. He can't get enough of them. Tilt a riser. Ram it with walnuts. <laughs> I always thought cram it was the expression. Most people can cram it, but you, sir, you can ram it. <laughs> well, I shall be doing that later on. This is the anti-penultimate sitcom club, isn't it? Of the regular era. It's not like we're splitting up for good. Could you actually get off to the chocker block just now and just check what is the correct word for what comes before penultimate? Because it must be a proper word. I just used it then, anti-penultimate. But that doesn't, no, that doesn't sound right. Anti-penultimate, that just sounds like you've stuck another word in front of an existing word. No, ante. A-N-T-E. Anti-penultimate. Like oh, anti-rule. see. Right. Oh, okay. I thought you meant I was the anti-penultimate, but then that could be anything. That could be in the first one or the second one or whatever. But I've made up a food of myself. Illiterate boob. Yes, indeed. I'll take that back and I shall resign There's from There's a something. story about Groucho Marx performing the song Tit Willow from the Mikado and got to a particular word. And I can't remember the line now. Da, 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 da. Or obdurate be. And he stopped singing his song. He said, does anybody out there know what obdurate means? No hands went up and said, I'm not doing this song for an ignorant audience. <laughs> I would like to actually watch Groucho's Mikado at some point for Java Cakes. That'd be nice. I don't know if it exists in colour. It was originally colour videotape. I think there's a black and white kinescope out there. That would be good enough because for years it was only an audio recorder. Oh, you want to do some GNS for Jaffa Cakes? Oh, whatever Because Ruddy Gore with Keith Michelle and Vincent Price is a good one. So... Recent events at Sitcom Club headquarters. Well, we had a bit of a problem, didn't we? We had multiple problems. What basically happened was, well, we can actually do this as a game of Crisis Tennis. So, first of all, I got a message from yourself. Hello, listeners, by the way. We're explaining what we should have been explaining at the beginning of the last two podcasts, because this is the first podcast that we've recorded since we had our unexpected downtime. The last two shows that you heard were in the can. But we weren't able to put them out at all because, basically, first of all, so you had a problem with your drive and you needed to get a new one. My hard drive died because I tried to back it up. It started slowing down, started acting funny. I thought, okay, it's time for another backup. And it went, because I tried to back it up. So while this was going on, my PC was on its last legs because it was, the casing itself was starting to crack up and the keys were starting to drop off, and I thought, right, this is going to get to the point now, because the screen was flickering as well, and what have you, there was a problem with the LCD cable, and I thought, right, I think I'd probably better get this dealt with now before it actually packs up entirely. So I thought, okay, well, if Tilt's drive is down anyway, we can't put in any podcasts during that time, I'll take my PC in to get it fixed. And it ended up taking two bloody weeks to get it fixed, and I think your problems were over and done within about three days, weren't they? Yes, I ordered a new hard drive. And decided to go SSD. I decided to spend a lot of money on a faster hard drive. So all being well, it will be easier to make podcasts because I won't have to go back and do little punch-ins and bits of re-recording because cool edit skipped. <laughs> and my laptop is as good as new. It doesn't wobble. All the keys are attached. I don't have to repeatedly the screen every three seconds as I was doing for the past six months. And all is well. But we're not going to make up the lost month. No, we're not going to make up the lost month because there are only so many months in a year, you see, and you can't replicate the magic of October and November in January and February. 
Well, next year, of course, the BBC is having a big celebration television sitcom, so what better time for us to not have the sitcom club? But we will have the sitcom club because the sitcom club isn't going anywhere. It's just not going to be a regular podcast anymore, but it will be turning up throughout 2016. We spoke about doing it on, say, bank holidays and Easter and all that kind of stuff, and we will certainly do specials. I think one of them we'll definitely do is if this abhorrent idea of them resurrecting all of these classic BBC sitcoms and making life beyond the box versions of them, if this actually happens in the summer of 2016, then we will definitely have a sitcom club for that. And of course, they're celebrating the 60th anniversary of sitcom, they claim, because they're taking Hancock's half hour moving to television as the beginning. And they're ignoring the fact it's the 70th anniversary, not only of television sitcom on the BBC, but of television sitcom. They're not shouting about the fact that they were first. They invented it. Justice for Pinwright. Well, hang on a second. Was Pinwright first in the world or was there not something It's generally believed. Wikipedia says so. Mark Lewison said so in his Radio Times Guide to Comedy. First regular half-hour television sitcom. Okay, well, this is good stuff. Well, let's get on to the BBC. That we probably haven't finalised the branding for next year, right? So let's get on to them just now. Pinwright's progress. That would be fabulous, wouldn't it? But who's going to play Pinwright? Well, I mean, so far the talk is that Porridge will be a sequel. Keeping Up Appearances will be a prequel. I hate that word. So Porridge will be a sequel. It will not be starring James Corden because he turned it down. And it's going to be about this cyber hacker who does all that kind of trendy stuff with the computers and what have you, with all the graphics. And The Good Life, that's been spoken about as well, has it not? Yes, don't know what the plan is. We did previously have the rumours about some others do have them, whether that's part of this or whether that's part of some other revival, we don't know. I suspect that some others, I think that's going to be one of those gold retrospective documentaries and probably the two of them i was gonna say frank spencer and michelle Dutrice. that's not quite right but you know what i mean they'll, they'll probably be interviewed together and what have you they'll, they'll probably do one of those things where it's like they haven't met for like 30 years and so let's record their two separate train journeys and then watch them as they meet for the first time in 30 years which will obviously be staged because they probably met weeks in advance i'm very cynical aren't i so a cynical being a small problem we thought to come back officially we go with a real barnstormer, one that gets played on gold and ITV3 <laughs> all the time. And, you know, in all honesty, there really isn't anything to say about it. So we might as well just wrap up now. You know, go out, buy the Blu-ray. It's available for digital download. It's on Netflix. What the hell? Projected onto the moon every night. Oh, what? A fella in the John Lewis adverts. He loves it. You did more research or research than I did for this. You had an in somewhere. You had an article. This was just pure coincidence because at the moment i'm going through a load of old radio and tv times trying to create a bit of space partly for my little studio (laughs) here which is actually a corner with some tiles and a pop shield which is taped up with i think it's called ultra tape i'm not sure it's one of the ones that you can't tear easily anyway i've got this old copy of the radio times from 1987 and i remember that we had an article in it from the writers mike walling aka brittle saddles and tony milan as seen in citizen smith about this sitcom that they'd written about heightism, but they weren't in the show itself. The only recognisable name really was Christopher Ryan. And this article, unusually, was one which came a few weeks into the series. So it was able to actually not just discuss the show itself, but discuss the initial reaction to the show. By the magic of digitising, I've actually got the article in front of me right now. Shall I quote liberally? What do you think? Yes, do so. I just wish we had some points of view from that time. So the gist is that 
Milan and Walling, they were already prepared for objections to this show. Because basically this show is, I suppose you could say, it's certainly a satire on persecution and discrimination. You could probably say there's a lot of parallels with apartheid South Africa as well. However, they weren't quite ready for the response that they got. According to the article here, it says that Mike Walling was summoned to appear on the BBC's open air the next day after the first episode to respond to some of the complaints, the gist of which was that if the subject had been an ethnic minority, the series would never have been allowed. I'm very sorry that people have been offended, says Mike, but perhaps they've missed the point. A small problem is about how ridiculous prejudice is. It is an attempt to deal with a serious subject in a comic form. And actually, it could have been about anything. People with big ears or blue eyes, for example. I think, for, for whatever reason, this, like so many other shows, this seems to have just disappeared into the sands of time. But I don't think that they should have done. I think that this should have been more celebrated than it was. It still stands up very well today. I wouldn't call it a lost classic. But yes, it certainly needs to be talked about. Certainly needs to be a little bit more, oh, do you remember? Because it isn't really mentioned at all. Nobody's ever asked me a question about it. Nobody's ever had a reminiscence about it in my presence. So to set up the concept, it's... I guess one of those dystopian future ideas. There's quite a few. I wouldn't mind digging around and seeing how many we can dig up of dystopian future fascist Britain television shows. Off the top of my head, I can think of The Guardians and Knights of God. If you want dystopian communist future, of course, there's Comrade Dad. But are we going to do that? Eventually. (laughs) So you don't get a full picture of exactly what this world is like. Up until just before the story starts, people below the height of five feet have to live south of the river in London. I don't know about other places, but they have to live in much worse accommodation. They have fewer rights and they can be pushed around and bullied and beaten up in public with impunity. And yet the government, their spokes, people on the radio and so on, they're saying, oh, this is just anecdotal evidence, there's nothing to suggest any of that kind of thing's going on, and actually I think you'll find that the whole project's working out superbly, and and the small people themselves are very pleased with how things are going. But with greater European integration, there's a change. Now, the height limit is not 5 feet, it's 1 metre 55 centimetres. And we start with a character called Roy Pink. He was just above 5 feet, but he's just below 155 centimetres. So he's now being reclassified as a small. That's the polite word, but people then also use shrimpo and midjo. But he's not sympathetic because he is quite happy to use the abusive terms and says, oh, I hate them. And so his whole thing is, I'm not a small. There's been a mistake. And he refuses to cooperate with the other people in the rather depressing block of flats he's been moved to. This is going to be an odd one to describe because it's a strange one to describe how extremely nasty people are in this yeah i mean it, it appears that there is a common consensus amongst the non-smalls that this is acceptable that in some way the smalls have brought this upon themselves so children in this dystopian world they are expected to reach a certain height at a certain age they have coming of height parties the general feeling is that shrimpos have brought this upon... I'm just going to use that word because that's how it 
That's the word that they use throughout this. The Shrimples have brought this upon themselves, that they're responsible for their smallness. They refuse, that's one of the lines in the opening lyrics, they refuse to grow, you know. So it is really all their fault, we're led to believe. And so it's become socially acceptable to not only badmouth small people, but also to sort of treat them badly in the street. I mean, there's not really anything nasty. There's not any instances of, of small people actually being sort of beaten up or anything like that. But you wouldn't be surprised if that was described in the show. You know, the, no, the, isn't the it targets. one of the first things we see? Somebody playing the harmonica and a woman reaches in the bag and he thinks he's reaching for a coin and she reaches for whatever's in her bag and starts hitting him with it. I don't know if it's like a French loaf or something. Yeah, I suppose you would say that's a comedy assault. And don't we see some people that's like thrown into a canal? I don't remember that. Okay, well, I'm going to take this back because it might mean there's actually like a scene where an entire office block was blown up or something. No, there's various bits. I mean, then we have this point where they're only allowed north of the river if they have a wayfarer's pass. One of the characters has one and presents it to the policeman. The policeman tears it up and says, you don't have a wayfarer's pass, go away. Yes, a lot of this is to do with police brutality and actions of the police being at odds with the public statements. And this is possibly part of the reason why the general public feel sort of empowered to be able to badmouth or worse, ill-treat small people is because they're being told via the propaganda that this is for their own good and that they're actually benefiting in their own way from this apartheid. And anybody who tries to get on the air and say otherwise is called troublemaker. There's plenty of parallels over the last, I don't know, I mean, I suppose in the, in the televisual age, I suppose last 40 or 50 years of you having your sort of light-hearted ho-ho entertainment and what have you on BBC One and ITV and on BBC Two and Channel Four, you might get somebody from a minority group who is talking about how things are not all that they appear to be on the national news and what have you, but of course nobody's listening because everybody's watching Terry and June arsing around on BBC One. It's not all that far-fetched, really, is it? I mean, the group in question that they've selected, it's far-fetched, and you have this illogical argument that it's all their own fault. But that's, of course, the point, is that they're trying to highlight how ridiculous prejudice is. To quote that article again, it does seem that some people have just thought, oh, here's two writers having a go at small people, which it very, very obviously isn't. I'm not really sure how anybody watching for more than a few minutes would not realise that that's what's going on. So the characters Roy Pink encounters, they all seem to just represent different reactions you would get in an oppressed and occupied people. Fred and Lily, Dickie Arnold and Christine Hosan, and they're trying to put a brave face on things. No, everything's okay. It's fine. Let's just all work together. They're trying to make the flats nice. And effectively, it's like this is what collaborators are like. Yeah, he's described at one point by one of his fellow residents as an Uncle Tom. And he's always making excuses for the state's actions, for the police actions, and so on. That was one of the few things, actually, that... I mean, okay, it sounds ridiculous to say about things that I found unrealistic, because the premise itself, on the face of it, is unrealistic. But, of course, scratch the surface and it isn't. That was one of the few things I found sort of unrealistic about the reaction of the Smalls. Is that I thought that Fred, eventually, he would be removed from his position as chairman of the residents association if not by a vote perhaps more forcefully because i think after a little while you'd think okay well this guy clearly is not going to forward any of our interests at all he's never going to speak up for us and i suspect that he would have been perhaps overthrown in a, maybe a non-military coup and the character that calls him an uncle tom is i believe jenny 
played by Corey Pullman, and she's the 1980s equivalent of what they call social justice warriors. Left-wing agitator in a guardian-reading kind of way. She keeps doing petitions and gets somebody in from the law society. So she's trying to change things by agitating within the system. You have Sid, played by an actor called Big Mick, and he just complains all the time. Doesn't like the new people. I guess he represents the proles. I don't use, I mean, he's using the word proles in sort of the, maybe the 1984 sense. He cares because he's being messed about. He's not really bothered about any larger political implications of what's happening. I think if everybody else was oppressed but him, he'd be okay. He's obsessed with Douglas Bader, but pronounces it Bader. So one of us is wrong. And of course, then we have Howard. Isn't this really a great time to be discussing a sitcom where one of the lead characters is a terrorist? Because that's what Howard is. Howard is part of the small liberation front, and he's really an interesting character because he is nice as far as he can be to everybody. He listens to all the characters. He's, I suppose maybe at some point every character talks to every other character, if you think about it, but we can be sure. Howard has a conversation with everybody sort of on their own terms. Of course, Roy is maybe the most obstructive because he's not a small, but Howard is a bit of a charmer flirting with Lily and he's, he's really concerned about what Fred's doing and he has an excuse for not being at particular places at particular times but one of the first things we see him do without knowing it's him is planting a bomb in a film vault and so that's what he represents. He's completely despaired of the system and has decided to do this and let's not get ahead of ourselves but it does raise the questions does this actually do any good? Well, he is the leader of the Small Liberation Front, which is often referred to on news broadcasts. And he has a good cover because that cinema vault that you mentioned, he's a projectionist. That's his day job, isn't it? So he's got this hiding place where he can have secret meetings and so on. And it gives him a little, like, little bit of characterization that he's obsessed with old movies and seems to try and turn every conversation into a conversation about classic lines from classic films. So Christopher Ryan really is really the only recognisable name because it's, by intent, it's a no-star vehicle because they don't want recognisable people in the roles. But does that cloud your empathy with the cast? I mean, if it's suddenly a lot of people that you recognise from other shows, does that mean that you can't quite necessarily connect with them precisely on the terms that the writers want? Actually, I think maybe one of the reasons it's not full of recognisable names is they had to cast only people below a certain height and actually they cheat because I checked this I looked it up Christopher <laughs> Ryan is five foot one so he actually he should not already be in the block of flats he should be one of the ones who'd been reclassified he's oh, over five nice. feet but he's under 155 centimeters and that means of course that Mike Ellis as Roy Pink shouldn't be there at all because he looks to have a couple of inches on Christopher Ryan but I think that's possibly the reason that we have this, is that you've restricted the talent pool to people who just look the right height. Well, it's interesting you say that because apparently, according to the Radio Times article, there was actually an instance of them having to go beyond the spotlight directory in one case. It says that since you could find no Japanese actor from Britain who was small enough, it is a student of business studies, Tetsu Nishino, who plays the businessman visiting London to open a factory and finding himself rounded up for the ghetto. Now, that's an interesting bit, Mr. and Mrs. Motokura, because on the one hand, I could bring out my old 
thing of, oh, see, another joke about Southeast Asians. And it could have been. Initially, it sort of is. First couple of episodes, it's just it's a joke about Japanese people being small. But as we get further into the show, we see more of the effect this is having on them. We actually get to stick around and see their upset, particularly Mrs. Motokora. And then we have a scene about how even right on Jenny is fairly patronising of them. And we do have this ridiculously uncomfortable scene where they're just speaking English very slowly in the hope that they understand and somebody ends up drinking rainwater. Uh, there's a couple of ways that you can look at this because I think it was around about sort of episode four or thereabouts. It's quite a long scene to that effect when they're having the residence meeting and they're, the Japanese couple are trying to be understood. And part of me is sort of thinking, okay, this is stretching the point a little bit because surely somebody in that room is going to say, um, is it possible these two Japanese people don't speak any English? Maybe that's what's going on here. But at the same time, because they don't do that, because they're all so idiotic, they're trying to effectively work out what they're saying from the Japanese wording, even though they don't speak Japanese. And that in itself is saying that the shrimpos, the smalls, they're just as capable of prejudice as the people who are prejudiced against them. So they're being unwittingly prejudiced against two people within their own group. And the way that they're doing that sort of British tourist abroad by, you know, speaking very slowly or shouting or whatever it may be, thinking that's how they're going to be understood and what have you. It is absurd that you'd think that this group, which is experiencing prejudice every single day, you'd think that they would be perhaps more aware of other people being victims of prejudice, but in some ways are not. And I suppose, again, that's something that you get day in, day out. I mean, if you're on Twitter for more than five minutes, you see groups of people having arguments with each other saying, oh, hang on a minute, surely you should understand, you know, prejudice, you should be on our side when it comes to this. And other people say, no, 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 it's a different thing, and so on, so on, so on. But we're not here to solve the problems of Twitter, are we? If we could, we would. It's a serial. That's the thing we haven't really said. We haven't really used that word. And I think that's the reason we want to talk about it. And you were saying that it should be talked about more because it tells a complete story. It has an interesting little thing that every episode except the last ends on a very similar shot. It always ends up with somebody looking over Roy Pink's balcony. Yeah, well, let me quote the Radio Times article for the last time because this fits in with this particular topic. Unlike many sitcoms, which the audience can tune into with no preparation, they have to reset the scene at the start of each episode. We have to restate this bizarre premise all the time, says Mike, and explain what we're talking about in a world where small people are loathed for no good reason, prejudice is wrong, and the story so far all in 30 seconds. Now, I think they do a pretty good job of that in this series, and it was cited as a reason why Arrested Development was not more successful on American television years later. This idea that it was so full of in-jokes that if you joined it, say, halfway through series two, apart from the absolute core of the story, you really didn't have a clue what was going on. Yeah, it would be easy to fall into that sort of trap where, yeah, if you did wander into this in sort of episode four and what have you, you think, well, what was it that prompted this? Because that's another thing as well. There's no incident, is there? There's no incident which prompted this to happen. We're already there at the beginning of episode one. It does make it really unsuitable for binge-watching. Because you do get repeats of jokes and the audience laughing. And the audience maybe have heard them for the first time. But the whole thing of Little Women being a banned book. You might have forgotten about it after six weeks, but after three hours you haven't. And it's interesting actually that it manages to 
strike a quite a nice balance between the obvious bits like that and then the detail of the story. Say, for example, if you had a two Ronnie skit about prejudice against small people, you would get that little woman gag in there. You probably wouldn't then get gags about the small liberation front and the specifics of what they were getting up to, for example. But it manages to strike a nice balancing act between the bits and pieces that you sort of expect as soon as you hear the the topic mentioned and the actual bones of the story itself. Okay, here's the thing. You mentioned the two Ronnies. One thing that raised the question, there's a couple of episodes where Glyn Worsnip turns up as a newsreader. And part of me is thinking, is that just supposed to be Glyn Worsnip? And then there's a bit where they mentioned Gloria Honeyford. And tomorrow on Gloria Honeyford's program, it's like, Gloria Honeyford's a real person. Are we to take it that in an oppressive Britain full of prejudice, Gloria Honeyford would still be a happy part of this? And what happens to Ronnie Corbett? (laughs) He's five foot nothing. That's never addressed, is it, that issue? I think maybe it's the first time I've seen one of these dystopian things where they mention a real celebrity. Okay, it's only Gloria Honeyford and there's a Glyn Worsnip question. But that'd be a risk, wouldn't it? Setting something in a nasty version of the world and saying, by the way, this celebrity's still famous, so I guess they're okay with it. Of course, we frequently have these shows pop up, these clip shows and what have you, about how things were 40-odd years ago. And I suppose there's an argument for saying that plenty of people would not necessarily be going along with something which was inhumane or whatever it may be, but if it's something that's been just established, if it's just the way that things are, then somebody, for example, like an investigative reporter or something like that, who's looking into it for Walden action, maybe, they'll simultaneously be called a troublemaker at the time. And then 40-odd years later, you'll get somebody saying, oh, listen to the, the ghastly language that they're, that they're using and the assumptions that they're making and so on and so on. So they can't win, can they? There's a slightly despairing element to this show. I'm just thinking of all our main characters in the block of flats. I don't think any of them are shown to have any hope of making things better. And Howard, who they make a charismatic figure, we even have that little riff on the third man, where the light comes on and we see him and the third man theme starts playing. Howard makes things worse. Yes, he does. I mean, it would you could argue then that some of the calls to open air would have a point if Howard came out as a victor every single week and... You know, the, the the government was issuing a whole raft of concessions because of Howard's latest activity as part of the SLF. Then you could have some people saying, look, this, surely this is sending out you know, the wrong message. But the show itself doesn't shy away from that because I suspect that if you didn't have Howard in this show, all you'd be left with really would be Jenny who's organising our petitions and so on. But that's about as much in the way of dissent as you get. And you'd sort of be thinking at the back of your mind, you know, if I was in that position, would I be limiting myself to petitions or would I be thinking of more direct action? It doesn't necessarily mean to say that you would, it's just that the idea would cross your mind. Well, let's actually start blowing plot points because this isn't a particularly easy available to get hold of thing and our listeners know whether they want to avoid spoilers or not. Because towards the end, things are getting a bit dark. <laughs> I mean, they don't start out nice. But you have this thing, so Roy has an appeal which doesn't go well. And while his appeal's going on, some people from the SLF come in, they grab him and take him away, and they blow up a records office. And that makes suddenly everything much, much worse for the Smalls. What happens in the end is all the Smalls get their money stopped. 
There are no benefits paid out to Smalls. Is it they've never had the vote or they lose the vote during this series? We see this weird, sadistic little thing where there's a soup kitchen, but the soup is put in a cup on a chain that's too high for them to reach, so they just end up spilling hot soup on their faces. Things are going to get worse. And Shelley mentioned what happens near the end of the last episode. The police know Howard and think he's a friend of theirs. I guess he does the projection for some naughty movies for police parties. So we see the Howards look, and the music in this is worth mentioning. There's a lot of doomy strings throughout the show. I guess maybe there to let you know these are bad things that are happening. You're not supposed to entirely laugh. When we see what could be seen as a bit of physical humour, no, listen, the music is there. It's a very modern thing. But in this, I'm going to say that there's an excuse for that saying, by the way, the reason we've scored this like a horror film is just to let you know this isn't slapstick. Anyway, the music gets dark. And for the first time, Howard looks crazy. He doesn't look charming or determined. He just looks a bit mad. We know he's going to do something at the police station. And it's like, well, we've seen what the records office blowing up did. What is going to happen next? Do you think there was ever any intention for a second series? Yes, I think so. I mean, how would you describe this ending? It's was it an acknowledged ending. Is it an ending for this six-part run as it doesn't end on I'd actually bring out a new heading se. and call it the reversible ending. The reversible definitive ending. Because it ends in such a way that it really says da, 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 the end but there's something there that it wouldn't take a great deal of work for a second series to be brought back. But I, I get the feeling that at the end of the six episodes they've said their piece. This is a tricky one because I think it's probably a fair presumption that in 1987 that this is primarily aimed at apartheid South Africa. To then have a definitive resolution to the story, is that either feasible or even desirable in 1987? Because you want to leave people thinking about the topic. You want to leave people thinking about parallels with the real world. And if you just sew everything up and then everything's fine at the end of it, then doesn't that sort of undo your work over the previous six weeks? You don't want the audience to be comfortable. I mean, there could have been a second series, but even at the end of that second series, it wouldn't necessarily have had a nice resumption or even a complete resumption. Actually, Mike Walling is in this. I'm not entirely sure about Tony Milan, but Mike Walling's definitely one of the voices on the radio. We do know that there is opposition. Anytime we hear a politician supporting the policy, there does seem to be somebody there opposing the policy. That raises questions. No, that, that suggests... I know that certain sort of political thinkers, modern day political voices and so on, will argue that that is, in effect, that sort of framing the argument in an acceptable manner. So in other words, if you've got a policy which some people may think is inhumane or whatever it may be, then you have a certain limited amount of dissent which is allowed on the airwaves. But that dissent is basically somebody sort of coming along and saying, well, I think actually... Report the controversy. Little, yeah, this, this is a wee bit harsh, the measure. And could you not, you know, maybe water it down a little bit? It's not actually somebody coming on and, and saying polar opposite. And that then effectively keeps the status quo in place. And it's really then just an argument between two tiny little sections of the political spectrum about whether you should be using a, a mallet or simply a baseball bat. Actually, I'll tell you one thing that didn't work. For the most part, the use of media in this is pretty effective. There's a really great bit in the first episode where we have this interview where somebody is justifying the changeover from 
Imperial to Magic and the laws against Smalls while we see things being done to Roy. Get two pieces of information at once. Very televisual. We get that weird bit. We haven't mentioned Roy's brother, who is played by David Simeon from End of Part 1. Hooray! And his brother's wife, Heather, played by John Blackham, who just hates him and is obviously a very unacceptable face of the policies. She's a social climber and she thinks that any association with the smalls who are obviously persona non grata is going to be disaster. As she sees it, she's sort of rescued her husband from sort of associating himself too strongly with his brother and so on. There's a few interesting things because when you do a story like this and do it as a sitcom, you have to find other sources of jokes than the main premise. Yes, some of the things that she says, they're within the world, they're within the world of words like shrimpo and midjo. But yes, they're about her social climbing, they're about her snobbery. And Roy's brother George is a classic British comedy bore. He owns a shoe shop, and what was he saying? Oh, I think it says here that mules are coming back. It's a bit like Martin and his three-eighths grub screws. <laughs> it's that kind of thing. I think it might, it might have been an article I read about Doctor Who where somebody said, somebody else said, that David Simeon was actually a very Michael Palin-esque actor. And you see it there. He's playing the slightly Mr. Pitherish, constantly going on about what interests him at the time. And another joke that just, it's nothing to do with the idea. For a brief period, Roy is put in prison. When episode two starts, it's the end of his time inside. And he comes out of the prison carrying a brown paper parcel. And he opens it and there's nothing there. It's like, oh, well, they always give you a brown paper parcel when you leave jail. A joke just about television cliches. (laughs) Out of nowhere. Here's an idea. So we've got Roy's brother and his wife. They are our main contact with the outside world north of the river. How uncomfortable would it be for the audience if we saw all the characters who were north of the river and they all shared the same prejudices against the smalls, but otherwise they were really nice people because that would really be hard-hitting. It would be effectively a sort of mirror on the audience themselves to say, you think that because, you know, you're all sort of liberal and woolly and what have you. You think that you're all you know sort of lovely and what have you. But the fact of the matter is that people who you think are very nice and charming and very broad-minded and so on, when you scratch the surface quite often, they have got illiberal views, perhaps about one particular section of the community or whatever it may be. That might be more realistic, but also would be very uncomfortable and be hard to see how you get a lot of comedic opportunities out of that. I can see why they didn't do that, though. It's a lot of hard work making a rod for your own backs because also then you have the probability that you're giving an out to some of the audience but also you've got the whole thing of overbalancing a show that already has a lot of characters but this is going to sound like a really weird segue but stick with it okay victoria woods midlife christmas you're a fan of victoria woods so i know that you're familiar with this particular show yes i remember the reaction it got at the time there was a particular device, a particular framing device, which I don't think Victoria Wood herself was particularly pleased about. Hopefully I'm not misrepresenting it, but I think that that's something that came out in the newspaper stories afterwards. And you've basically got this stereotypical middle-aged couple watching the show that you are watching. And 
I saw this show a few years later on Gold, and after a while I sort of thought, yeah, if I was the target audience for this show, that would really bloody well get my nerves. Because the thing is that this sort of cartoonish couple would sometimes crop up in the middle of a routine, reacting to one of Victoria Wood's lines or whatever it may be. And eventually I'm sort of thinking, are you actually just taking the piss out of me for sitting here watching this? Because that's how this is sort of coming across. And if you'd had, for example, a really, really nice family in a small problem and you were led down the garden path and you agreed with all the nice things that they were saying and all the pleasant statements they were making and so on, and then they started turning on the smalls, that could get a bad reaction from the audience. That could get a sort of, oh, I see. Right, I see what you're trying to do. So you're pitting me as a villain now. So yeah, that, that could definitely backfire. Perhaps that's something that's more suited to drama rather than comedy. Anyway, so the use of media is mostly very effective. It's that interesting bit where they're listening to an episode of The Archers and we don't know which characters they are. I'm not sure they're named characters, but they kill some smalls <laughs> to give you an idea of how bad things are. But again, it's using a recognisable franchise saying, oh yes, in this world, even the things you know are part of the prejudice. But then we get a bit that's just voiced over like an old-fashioned Pathé or Gaumont movie tour news 1940s newsreel. Good for you, Granny, and this whole, they're trying to suddenly paint a nice picture on this woman being reclassified. And it comes out of nowhere and it doesn't work at all. It's like, no, this is not a sketch show. You can't just suddenly put in a parody of something that has no reason to be here. We know that their television news is like our television news. It's 1987 or later. Maybe it's a parallel world, maybe it's the future. We know they don't have newsreels like they used to. There's also another bit where they start talking about a disease affecting smalls called the smallpox. And it's like, are you bringing an AIDS reference in from nowhere? Because, okay, that's very 1980s, the prejudice thing when it's being called the gay plague. But it's like, you're getting scattershot now. I know this isn't meant to be a one-for-one pure parallel with apartheid but there is the risk that if you just start gathering every single prejudice you can think of you start to lose focus they don't really take that idea anywhere i think that would have been better just cut out because they don't follow through but the idea then comes in that starts to diffuse the idea you remember the bit i'm talking about yes yeah i wonder if that's perhaps an attempt a topicality to jab at the audience because, okay, and this, this might sound ridiculous to say it in, in 2015, but I can remember also that apartheid, South Africa, often it will be the top story in the news, often it won't be, and often domestic affairs will have a higher billing on the news than what was happening in South Africa on that particular day. So I wonder if perhaps things like that, little instances like that, have been dropped in there to sort of maybe prod somebody into thinking this has got some relevance to you, you know, think about this. In 1987 in particular, I think that was around about the time when they started putting out the public information films. And so I wonder if there's, yeah, just a sort of attempt there to make it a little bit closer to home as well. I'll tell you what I actually thought that Small Problem was going to be, and not, not before we started reviewing it for the sitcom club, but years ago when I'd heard of this show, I thought this was actually going to be, I suppose you'd say stereotypical Free Walls VT sitcom. The only name that I recognised on the list was Christopher Ryan. And I was thinking, is this going to be basically Christopher Ryan works in an office and everything's normal and it's, you know, 1987, normal Britain. And it's just basically going to be sort of full of height jokes and what have you. 
he's got his eye on some lovely lady in the office, but she's going out with this six foot five rugby player and so on. And well, like, I actually thought that's what this was going to be. And in a way, I was really pleasantly surprised when I found out that wasn't at all what it was. You think people would have accepted that? The people complaining on open air, you think they would have been less bothered by that? Because I guess partially it's just like, hey, it's a three-walled VT half-hour sitcom, and it then gets really political. And people know that they don't like it and go thrashing around for, why don't I like it? It's the prejudice, it's the small jokes. I know this is written by people I don't like. That's not a blanket condemnation of everybody who complained about it. And this is one of the problems. When you do jokes about offence that can be looked on as offensive jokes, you can say, well, yeah, no, I'm making fun of prejudice. But I'm guessing this is something that is a real problem for some people. There is height prejudice. There is such. I mean, pretty much any state of being is used against somebody. And for some people, they're going to be put through hell because of this. And then somebody comes on and makes a joke and say, it's okay. I'm trying to mock prejudice and it's like you just you, you've just used the word you've just used the situation i don't care it hurts all over again i don't have an answer for this but it is that thing it's like if you took everything out that was offensive to somebody you wouldn't make any jokes and it's like yeah but somebody hurts how can we do this is there any way of doing this without somebody hurting a large amount of comedy will have things that are offensive to somebody but let's keep looking Let's keep thinking up new ways of making the old jokes and see if maybe one day we can find something that is uproariously funny and doesn't hurt anybody. Maybe if we think about it enough, we'll find something. I suspect that you're right in as much as if you go in a certain direction like that, then you can at least minimise upset. But I don't know that you would ever eliminate it entirely. To give you an example, this is not comedic example okay let's not eliminate it entirely but let's narrow it down to you you can be the world's pin cushion let's think of the most hurtful thing we can say about student television and i've heard it <laughs> fanta boy hey old fizzy chops <laughs> i actually quite like the name fizzy chops <laughs> i'm gonna use that as well oh, great go form a band <laughs> you haven't got me for not having any Musical talent, because I don't have any of that. So I yeah. don't have any musical talent. I'm a drummer. The point I'm making is that I'm not really arguing this for argument's sake, but I'm going to put this forward as a counter-argument. If you do go on that sort of quest to find pure comedy that doesn't offend anybody at all, then I think that's laudable as an intent, but also it's likely to be unsuccessful, not just in terms of comedically because it can become you know very bland and, and basically the sort of comedy of say Mr. Tumble on CBeebies is it going to become like that for example and I'm Come sure on, that right. sitting... no 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 this is about you now isn't it why do well, you hate no, Mr. No. Tumble no you really seriously Ser- the number of times you send me like a PM through <laughs> Skype and you go oh god it's Mr. Tumble I hate Mr. Tumble. Why do you hate Mr. Tumble? It just, it's just his face annoys me. I'm sorry. And that, that, that's a terrible reason. I mean, I hate the map on Dora the Explorer. He does this pastiche of a newsroom and it looks like Cliff Mitchell Moore sucker 1970. How the hell is that supposed to be relevant to anybody watching in 2015, let alone the CBB's audience? He's doing things that sort of tangentially refer to Cliff Mitchell Moore in 1970. 
and you don't like him. He should be your best friend. So, right, you saw Mr. Tumble, maybe, and he's he's sitting on a perfect replica of the election night set for the first election in 1974. And maybe the next time we see it, it's actually the second election in 1974. Ah, well, now you've gone and made a boo-boo because Cliff Mitchellmore wasn't the host of the 74 I'm not. I'm talking about sets now. I'm not talking about Cliff Mitchellmore. I've moved on from Cliff Mitchellmore. Cliff Mitchellmore is yesterday's news. What is the point of replicating the set of election 74 and then having Cliff Mitchellmore host it? You might as it's well Mr. Tumble. No, it's Mr. Tumble. I'm saying if Mr. Tumble was on a perfect replica, I was pressing your other button, election nights. You might as well have replicated Downing Street during Black Wednesday and then have Neil Kinnock as a prime minister. Cephalogical Yeah, you know, That's going to be the attention to detail that we're going to have. No, but l- let me get back to the, the point. If you try and avoid offence entirely... Ballot boy. Then, if you try and avoid offence entirely, then first of all... <laughs> it can... I was just thinking about... I can't remember what it was. It was a still game. <laughs> I was at the cinema... And Victor's coming out with some great insults. And Jack goes, yeah, you prick. (laughs) Every time. (laughs) Right. If you try and avoid offending people entirely, I suspect that, yeah, your comedy will become very bland. And I don't know that anybody's ever actually managed to pull off this trick because, as we've talked about before, alternative comedy in the 1980s, for example, simply moves the targets. It's no less offensive than what went before. It's just that the, the victims are different. But also, I suspect, like I said right at the outset of this discussion, somebody will find offence in something. And just because it's one person, does that mean that, that it's less upsetting for them than if you offend a million people? I'm just saying let's have a laboratory. I'm not saying let's have a massive plan to reform all comedy. I'm saying let's have like a radiophonic workshop of comedy. So have the BBC pay some people to be in a little side building. Just keep working on different kinds of joke. And if you get anything good, bring it to us. Just pay people to mess around all day experimenting. The day that we're recording this, they're talking about cutting the red button. They're going to cut the darks and the snooker and what have you. I'm not going to let them do all that and then give them a million quid to a few 24 century Do you like anything? Well, hang on a minute. The other day you were talking about the PM theme, how much you like the PM theme. Yeah, but that was from 1978. That's mm-hmm. That was a product of the Radiophonic Workshop. Yeah, but that's, That is that's the product sounds... of people being paid to mess around all day. Yes. So I'm saying do the same thing for jokes. I don't think the it Comedy Phonic like Workshop. No. By that Okay, argument, take then... the BBC out of it. Let's ask Mike Nesmith for some money. Hey, I'm up for that. Well, you know that... <laughs> I don't know if it's still... I think there was... As part of his mother's will, Mike Nesmith had to set up a think tank where he got some of the great brains of the age and they just then went off to a room and talked all day and at the end came out with some sort of statement that was then put on the Institute's website just to get the idea out there. Who really run out of things to say about a small problem? <laughs> what do you mean? We've just stimulated some of our most nobody, brilliant nobody things. Can- Nobody who downloaded this podcast followed the expression Mike Nesmith's will was going to feature anybody. Not Mike Nesmith, his mother. But yes, if you're listening, Mr. Nesmith, really, really like your work, really like The Prison, by the way. But I actually kind of like the original mix, not the one you get on CD. If you would consider maybe setting up a foundation to discover purer and more joyful forms of comedy, it's a thought. Hang on a minute. If we go down this route of yours and we're going to try and find this pure form of comedy, which actually sounds a little bit like late 
Tory Hancock when he was talking about this pure sort of form that it was constantly searching for. But if we go down this route, doesn't that mean that shows like A Small Problem wouldn't have a cat in hell's chance of getting commissioned? Because as soon as somebody looked at the premise, they would say, oh, you can't know because you're going to offend so many people. For a start, you're going to offend all the small people. No, that's grist to the mill, though. We learn from those things. We take a look at those things and then, see, you know, it's this is how progress works. You have to have somewhere to move from it doesn't have to be a nasty thing you can move away from things or simply build upon things and actually a small problem is moving in an interesting direction i thought you said that we were supposed to be searching for some sort of comedy that was inoffensive but how could we then use something like a small problem which by highlighting prejudice because it's got a purpose in mind because it's trying to do a good thing is inadvertently going to cause offence to some people and deliberately cause offence to There you go, inadvertently. So we look at their intentions, we look at what happened, we see if there's anything we can subtract from that. So it's like, right, we, so we, we need their intentions, but also the consequences that they intended. We haven't talked about spats for a while. Well, every time I talk about spats, you mentioned about how the Southeast Asian character seems to... Mentioned that like once, the neck. once, maybe twice. But no, you can't say the spats is inoffensive. Okay, also, it's offensive to vegetarians. What about that guy who's a bit thick? That's offensive to people who are thick, isn't it? I don't know. Do you find it offensive? <laughs> I never found Grant Cathro and Lee Pressman's work offensive. Of course not. And principally because they created the best television show ever made, T-Bag. But We'll do that. We'll do that. So when we're talking about, you're saying really the nice characters who share the prejudices, that the nearest we have to that is Fred and Lily. I think they're the sweetest. They're the ones who are the least likely to start an argument. And Fred has his whole thing of, well, come on, everybody. And But Fred ends up as a collaborator. I tell you what, initially they reminded me of uh, the Raymond Briggs book, When the Wind Blows. It's that whole thing of they're of a certain generation. They're trying to make the best of it, but they get dragged down. Who doesn't get dragged down in this? Maybe Lily. Well, Fred, by his constant appeasement ends up doing more damage than some of the other characters some of the other residents in the household because you know some of the other residents you know they're making more noise they're complaining a lot more but yeah fred's actually the one who is effectively the front man for the housing association he's the one who could speak and the re-edited interview yes yeah that was weirdly jarring i wouldn't necessarily say it didn't work but i was a bit confused by what it hoped to achieve. Well, I suppose it hoped to keep turning people against the smalls, but why him? Why that way? Why couldn't you just find somebody who you knew was going to shout their mouths off? And it is also, it's not as if they have stopped him halfway for a sentence. They've done a full hatchet job on him. They've reassembled his answers to phony questions. So, in a way, it's almost suggesting that the BBC themselves are part Yes, well, I mean, we've already had the problem. Archers bit. It's an odd little mixture, this show. It's quite hard-nosed in places saying, look, everybody gets besmirched, everybody gets touched by this. I just realised something which is slightly unsettling. This is the first such podcast in which this has happened. I've still got that Radio Times article in front of me, and it's got a photograph of Tony Milan and Mike Walling, and they're both looking straight at the lens. So I've just realised that for all the time that we've been talking about this, the two of them have been staring at me. <laughs> That's not usually the case. We've never had like Vince Powell or Carl Lane or anybody looking at you on screen for the entire dissection of their work. 
in closing, I think that this is unlikely to turn up on gold anytime soon. This would be a really, really nice little release for the BBC Store. I think yes. it's perfect for that because I don't know that there's going to be enough interest to warrant DVD sales. But at the same time, I think that there would be a cult audience for this. I think that it could be, what is it they call it when it's like something that just suddenly develops out of nowhere? A slow burner, is that it? A slow burner? Yeah, so it could be something that they just release one day and, you know, eventually word gets around and, and before you know it, it's getting talked about again in the Radio Times in the uh, in 2016. I mean, who knows? I mean, why not do this one for the wrong anniversary next year? A small problem too. They're back and with attitude. So next time. Next time we are looking at a series which was no less controversial in its day, but unlike... A Small Problem didn't actually get to the end of its run. There are seven episodes of it, but only six of them are from made air. And we promised to do this once before and never got around to it. We did indeed, and I think that was partly our fault because we had built this up to be basically more outrageous than OTT, <laughs> and when it wasn't, <laughs> there was a sort of sense of disappointment. But we're going to look at it with a fresh pair of eyes this time. We're going to look at it, take it on its own merits, and we're going to be talking about The Whackers, which was Vince Powell, 1976. And it is a story of not religious tension. I think that's too much. It's about Liverpool. It's about the dingle. It's about the things that make those people. Eh. <laughs> is that some Beatles lyric you're throwing at me now? No, I'm saying what the show's about. No, what, what's the, what do you mean the dingle? Isn't yeah. that where it's set? The dingle? Is it? Is it? I, don't know. I thought it was I set in were, the dingle, yeah. I thought you were referencing Mandy Dingle from Emmerdale. No, it's a neighbourhood in Liverpool where Ringo Starr grew up. The Whackers will be in two weeks' time. Next week on Jaffa Cakes of Proust, we start the first of our three Christmas specials. Three Christmas specials for Jaffa Cakes of Proust, no Christmas special for the sitcom club. That's how it's working. And we're going to be looking at seasonal oddities. Something we mentioned at the very beginning of Jaffa Cakes of Proust, but only briefly alluded to. That time on Christmas when they're trying to show something because they know the kids are up, nobody's at school. They have to show something. They can't show anything too expensive because that's being saved for the evening when everybody's around the TV. And maybe it should have kid appeal and they end up getting things from studios that are not that big and it's got its own little peculiar vibe to it and we call it the seasonal oddity. This is a spin-off from the regional variation due to football coverage and unusual time oddity, which we'll be talking about in a future advocates once I've done some research on England World Cup qualifiers of the 1980s. Anyway, if you've got anything for us at all, you can get in touch with us at The Sitcom Club on Twitter and you can find us on Facebook as The Sitcom Club and of course at sitcomclub.com. You can also hear all the shows at podnose.com as all manner of other podcasts as well. As Till pointed out, we are alternating each and every week between Jaffa Cakes and The Sitcom Club until the end of the year and then Jaffa Cakes for Proust will be once a month to begin with in 2016. So, in the meantime, Tilt. Goodbye. This is Gary signing off and saying thank you very much indeed for listening to The Sitcom Club.